0: This sermon was originally preached at Wolf River Presbyterian Church in Collierville. This recording is of the sermon being presented at the Adamsville Area Reformed Bible Study in Adamsville, Tennessee, meeting at 528 Old Stage Road in Adamsville. For more information, go to facebook.com forward slash Adamsville OPC. But there are many diaries of World War II, which we're probably familiar with the diary of Anne Frank, but there's another diary of World War II from a man who was torn from his homeland of Austria, who was torn from the land he loved, and he was sent to Poland to a town which is known by the name of Auschwitz in German, home of over 30 forced labor concentration camps, as many as estimates are two to four million Jews were murdered in that camp. Nobody really knows. But I wanted to read you an excerpt from his diary. This excerpt dated the 18th of March, 1942, when he writes this. The sound of loud, distinct footsteps marching down the stairs outside broke up the family embrace. The wooden door was smashed down with a mighty fist, then silence. The black silhouette of a German soldier transfixed our stairs. I stood unmoved, my family around me. Together we were like an army against this evil enemy. Nothing would break us. He raised his hands in my direction and tightly gripped around my neck, and with the help of an aide, this man lifted me from my feet and dragged me out of the small room up the narrow staircase and into the murky world of Austria. I could hear the pitiful sobs of my wife who had stood by my side through our whole marriage of 27 and a half years. I remember glancing at my family and watching their painful expressions. I recalled all our happy years as a family, all the times we'd spent together, all the memories we had shared, and I knew in my heart I would never see them again. He wrote, later, minutes, days, months followed. Under the Germans' watchful eyes, when commanded, we obeyed. When questioned, we answered. Hope was slowly fading. I longed for the familiarity of home in Austria, the touch of my wife, the laughs of my children, the jokes I used to share, the sense of happiness. I tried to recall the sound of my children's voices calling Papa. They had been washed away, replaced with cries of grief, depression, was ever-living. I start out reading that because I, in a way I want to set the scene for Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is a psalm of captivity. It's a psalm of Jews who had been torn away from their homeland. And they didn't, many of them, most of them, in fact, didn't experience what the Jews in Auschwitz experienced. But nevertheless, they knew what it was to be torn from their homeland and to be taken captive. Psalm 137 is a psalm of mourning, of lamentation. I want to go ahead and read this psalm together. If you turn your bulletin insert over, you'll find it there. And let's read the psalm responsively. I'll begin by reading the first verse and you can respond by reading the second. and So on. read the verses that are there. In the bold print. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the, the willows there, and we hung up our lives. For there our captives required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall, How shall we sing we the Lord's song in the far land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember if I do not set Jerusalem above my house. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at this passage this evening, that you would show us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we come for mercy, for grace at your hand, and it's in his name we pray, amen. I want to look at at this psalm by breaking it down into three different parts, it's kind of three different stanzas in the psalm, and the first stanza I want to look at is Judah's sadness, and you can see a little outline there in your bulletin, and then judah's sentiment in verses four through six and then judah's salvation the first thing we look at is is judah's sadness why is there this cry by the waters of babylon we sat down and we wept when we remembered zion and that's the scene that's the setting by the waters of babylon this is a song of captivity they're not in israel when they sing this song they're in babylon and you can read about it in Ezekiel and in the Old Testament prophets, the captivity of the nation of Judah to Babylon in 586 B.C. They are alienated from God. They're alienated from the temple, from the land. They're alienated from home. They hadn't listened to the warnings of the prophets. And the prophets have told them, you need to look at what happened to Israel. Israel had been taken captive about 150 years earlier. And you need to see how they were taken into captivity because of their disobedience and you also because of your disobedience to Judah, the southern kingdom. Will be taken captive as well. They weren't being, they didn't listen to the voice of God. In 586, Babylon came, smashed the temple, drags people off into captivity. So here they are. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. And these are probably the waters of Babylon in view here are uh, probably channels of irrigation that would be in the fields and the uh, the. the irrigation waters so of those channels would be fed by the Euphrates River. And this is where the Hebrew settlements were made. This is where they would farm their fields. And of course, Babylon was well known for its rich irrigation, for its lush foliage and agricultural life, and the waters of Babylon which would flow. And one of the one of the wonders of the ancient world, and you may remember, were the hanging gardens of of Babylon, an ascending series of tiered gardens with stunningly beautiful trees and shrubs and vines. And well, most of the Israelites were nowhere near that. But the irrigation waters are where they are it's a lush land, and they can farm that land, it's not theirs, but they weep. And why do they weep? Because they remember Zion. One of the purposes of captivity was that the people of Israel would remember their God. They'd be driven back to God when they saw the horrors of the captivity. And here we see that's happening. Zion is, is the mountain where Jerusalem was built. And they loved it. This was their homeland. Psalm 42 describes it. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion the far north, the city of the great king. And to the Jewish people, Jerusalem was their identity. It was their love. It was their life. The psalmists wrote songs about Jerusalem. Walk about Zion, Psalm 48. Go round about her. Number her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels. Look at the beauty of Zion. Why? Why do we look at the beauty of Zion so that you can tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever? This is God's holy mountain. Part of the effect of, of language like that in the book of Psalms is the culmination effect to see to the height of their love for Jerusalem. This isn't just a, a sentimental desire for mom's apple pie back at home. This is a love for the dwelling place of God. This is a love for the place where, where God would meet with his people. Once Jerusalem was the, the place of the magnificent Glory of the temple, the majestic glory of the dwelling place of God, Solomon's riches—they'd be on display, and the people of Judah made it a display. And the world would come, and they would wonder. And now it's a shadow of its former self; it had been destroyed. And it's one thing to to long for home. It's a, another thing when home isn't there anymore. You go back and it's been torn down. Did you ever get homesick? Sure. You go back home and the old homestead where you grew up is no longer there. There's no sin. There's only weeping. The the atrocities of the Babylonian army were bad enough, but that's not why they're crying. Why are they weeping? Why by the waters of Babylon do they sit down and weep? Oh, it's because they they love Zion. They love the dwelling place of God. They miss it. They can't go back. And the streams of their tears flow into the rivers of Babylon and are carried to the Euphrates. And then in verse 2, it expands on that a little bit. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, weeping willows that, 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 that would hang down like their faces would hang down. Or a place for them to hang their harps. And harps, of course, were instruments that were used by many in Israel, kind of like playing the piano uh, here in the United States. Everybody, you know, we've got a teacher, all kids need to learn how to play the piano, and everybody there knew how to play a harp, and they would pull it out, and they would sing with it, and they would sing praises to God, particularly. Harps were used by priests in the temple. And a harp was a picture of worship, signifying God's goodness to them, singing of his goodness, especially used in worship. But there's no reason now. And so they hang the harps up in the willow trees They drink from the channels. The willow trees might as well play the harps. We had no use for them. But in Jerusalem, they had sung. In Jerusalem, they had lifted up the harps and they had sang praises with joy. They had bowed down to God and worshiped. But here, in verse 3, they continued to lament for our captors there required of us songs. Our tormentors required mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And probably the, the people of Babylon, uh, uh, of Babylon had heard of the, the musical talents of their captives. They enjoyed hearing those Hebrew folk songs. Give us a song. Play for us. Then the first part of verse 3 is parallel with the last part of verse 3. For they are our captors required of us songs. The last part of verse 3, our tormentors required mirth. And we don't want just a song. Sing us a happy song. Sing us a song that's fun. Sing us a song that's full of joy. Don't just sing. Do it with a smile on your faces. They wanted a Hebrew folk concert. What are they doing? They're mocking. You. Play for us. Dance for us. Sing for us. But Judah centered it. There's no singing it. We see Judah's sadness, and then verses 4 through 6, their sentiment. The the, the second stanza here takes a a bit of a turn to a rhetorical. This is what the Babylonians required of the Judahites, and now we see their response in a rhetorical question. Verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then, of course, the answer to that rhetorical question is we can't. Well, why not? Because of the sadness is in their own hearts Proverbs 25 says like the one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on soda is the one who sings songs to a heavy heart they weren't in the mood for singing and these songs that the Babylonians wanted them to sing they wanted to hear some Hebrew a little Hebrew folk concert but these were not songs for entertainment these were songs for worship They couldn't be sung out of context. Songs of Zion had to be sung in Zion. Songs of Zion had to be presented to the living God, not the pagan princes. It's a reminder of our own singing. When we come to worship and we lift up our praises to God, what's our own singing sound like? Is it flat? And I say, well, yeah, it is actually. Not in tone. I'm not talking about the tone. But when we sing to Christ... Our worship takes on a different character. One of the parts of worship is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody, even if you can't do it with your voice, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. The Israelites couldn't make melody. And the would-be singers, they speak to themselves, they ask a the rhetorical question: how can we sing the Lord's song in a far land? And now they speak to Zion. You've got a rhetorical uh, comment. And they promise to remember Zion, and they call upon themselves a curse if we don't remember Zion. Verse 5: If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And the, the, the people of Israel, of course, were known for their skills, their work, their ability to work with their hands. And you've got so-and-so the baker, and so-and-so the butler, and so on, so-and-so the weaver. May I forget how to do any of that if I forget Jerusalem? The next imprecation or curse, verse 6, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I don't set Jerusalem above my, my highest joy. And these are this is a, a progressive parallel. You see in the Bible, particularly in the book of Psalms, you see in the Proverbs where you've got a verse that says something, and then the next verse says Essentially, says the same thing, but it takes it to the next level. It's called a progressive parallel. It repeats the idea of verse 5, but it expands upon it. It furthers the curse. If I forget Jerusalem, may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. And in fact, in verse 6, the curse is, is written first. Verse 5 says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. In fact, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. And that's the central point in those two verses is the curse upon them. That's the emphasis going beyond verse five. And there's really, it's not a lot to exegete here you know, in terms of what does this mean. It's fairly apparent, isn't it? Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Let my right hand forget its skill. There's a remarkable simplicity to this statement. It causes us to consider ourselves and consider what we exalt What we praise. What is our highest joy? What is our priority? What is it that we love? We are impressed by important titles and and job descriptions. Money. Somebody with money commands respect. We're impressed by the rich and famous and sports stars and movie stars. And we use the voices that, that God gave us to express admiration for many idols. How does, how does our devotion to God, how does our devotion to his word, how does our commitment to his worship measure up with the very simple sentiments expressed here? Would you be willing to say, may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, may I no longer be able to speak at all if I don't speak praise to God above everything? That's what I'm for. And the Judahites They've been so long impressed with the nations surrounding them. They admired Babylon. They wanted to emulate their wealth. They wanted to, to, to they, they, they coveted their significance and their influence on the world stage. And now they realize what they've lost. And it's that realization that causes them to cry out even further. And this is the third section of the psalm, the third stanza of Judas' salvation in verses 7 through 9. It's that realization that causes them then to cry out, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, and how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So here we take another turn for the third stanza. The Judahites have been talking to themselves, so they've talked to Babylon, and now it's a prayer. Now they cry out to the Lord to remember. Remember against the sons of Edom. These are what we would call imprecations. This is a psalm both of lament and a psalm of imprecation or an imprecatory psalm. that cries out, curses upon themselves and upon those who oppose the Lord. The sons of Edom is the first target of this imprecation. Who are these people? These Remember the sons of Edom are sons of Esau. They're descendants of Esau. And the Edomites, when the Babylonians came to make war on the Judahites, the Edomites are the ones who sided with the Babylonians when Jerusalem fell. And David had conquered the Edomites. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 8, or Second no, Samuel chapter 8. And David had conquered the Edomites, but the Edomites throughout the years had continued to cause disturbances. Ezekiel refers to their relationship between uh, Edom and Judah as one of ancient hostility. Even literature outside of the Bible suggests that Edom was responsible for the burning of the temple in 586. Why would Edom be responsible for the burning of the temple of Israel? Because the Babylonians would just see it as another pretty building. The Edomites understood the significance of They're the ones who induced the Babylonians to burn the temple because they had hopes that the destruction of Judah would mean that we, the Edomites, will be able to possess Judah's land. We'll be able to live there. In fact, historical records show that that indeed was the case. They got to take over the land that used to be Judah's. And so they cried out, according to our psalm, raise it, raise it to its very foundations. And now the Jews pray, Oh God, remember your promise regarding the Edomites. And the Judahites pray that God would fulfill his promise to punish them for their unmerciful part in the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, that's exactly what God had said he would do. So what the Judahites are praying here in verse 7 is that God would do what he said that he would do. When they call upon God to remember, they aren't thinking that, God, you might forget, let me remind you. But that term, remember, is a term which means God keep that covenant promise. And God, in fact, had said that he would do that in Ezekiel chapter 25. We can read it. Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and is greatly offended by avenging itself on them. Here's God's curse upon Judah. Verse 13 of Ezekiel chapter 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, and make it desolate. It shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord. And this, in fact, is what God does. The Lord answers this prayer in verse 7 to remember against the Edomites. In 70 AD, that promise of God is fulfilled. When Jerusalem is destroyed, the Edomites drop out of the historical record altogether. No more Edomites. So that's Edom first, and then they turn their attention to Babylon. In verse 8, Psalm 137, verse 8 o daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. And the, this is the imprecation now, or the curse that goes to the next level. The real enemy is Babylon. And this can be taken as an expression or a prophecy of desire. You are to be destroyed, the people of Judah. Right? And God used the pagan nations to punish Israel for her sin. But that pagan nation didn't escape God's judgment for their disobedience. In fact, you may remember in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, one of the, the facets of Daniel's vision. And you may remember that uh, that vision in which uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a, a dream. And there's a statue with a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver and belly and thigh of bronze and legs of iron and feet of clay and so on. And Daniel interprets them according to kingdoms. One kingdom is going to replace another kingdom, but the kingdom of God rises above all of these kingdoms. So why are they praying this against Babylon? Because this is what God has promised to do. God's vengeance would come upon his enemies. There's only one kingdom that remains. All the cities of man will fall. So why do the Israelites say this? Well, it's important that we understand this is not personal vindication, but it's retribution against the Lord's enemies, and it's in accordance with God's law. This is a righteous prayer. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, we, repeat, we, uh, we read, God repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. And in Babylon's case directly, Jeremiah had prophesied against him. in Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 55 and 56. The Lord is plundering Babylon, Jeremiah says. The Lord is silencing her loud voice. Though her waves roar like great waters, the noise of her voice is uttered because the plunderer comes against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men are taken. Every one of their bows are broken for the Lord is the God of recompense and he will surely repay. And that's the prophecy that is in view when the Israelites pray this in Psalm 137, verse 8. And we know that, one of the reasons we know that is because three words from Jeremiah, the passage I just read, are used here in verse 8 of Psalm 137, plunder, recompense, and repay. So righteous prayer. And psalms like this from time to time they trouble us. But this is a righteous prayer in accordance with God's covenant commitment to his people. And the expression here is that the kingdom that destroys Babylon would be a happy and blessed kingdom. And that then leads us to verse 9, the final imprecation of this song. And it's in this imprecation, shocking though it may sound at first, that it leads us to Judah's salvation. Verse 9 Blessed is he, or blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is a rather startling thing to read in the psalm. It's another progressive parallel. It goes further in the imprecation or in the curse against Babylon. And not just Babylon, but even the descendants of Babylon. Little ones here, of course, means children, but it's it's not used to designate a particular age We might think little ones in some translations will say dash the babies against the rock. It doesn't mean age. It denotes a relationship. The followers of evil, the children of Babylon, will be dashed to pieces. This is a a picture again of the vengeance of God against sinners. The third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Remember that phrase. The third and fourth generation of those who follow in the path of sin. This is the children of Israel. The picture that is being used here is that of a military victory. And we're a product of our own times, but we can't forget that the slaughter of children belonged to the practice of war in the days of Israel. Now, we have to ask ourselves as we come to this, what are we supposed to do with this imprecation, this curse? How are we supposed to understand this? How are we supposed to to handle this? As we read the psalm this evening, I'm sure as we read through we got to that last phrase. Some of you might have been thinking, well, I'm glad you're the one who read that because I I can't find myself saying that. In fact, the reason why we put it on a sheet of paper is because you won't find that particular psalm in the, the psalm readings of the Trinity Hymnal. They didn't include it. Why not? Well, who wants to say that? Who wants to read that in the church service? What do we do with this imprecation? Well, some thought, or some think, that, well, these these imprecations, these are sinful on the part of the Jews. They just just want to wish hurtful things on their enemies. Others say, well, no, we should pray these these, uh, imprecatory psalms against our enemies, that God will hurt them, destroy them. Particularly, of course, when we think that we are in the right. That the, all those those uh, armies of evil will be slaughtered by God himself. Of course, the horrific irony is that it's the evil who slaughter themselves. It's the wicked who kill their own children. The scourge of abortion is one that's visited upon the children of Babylon. But we as believers don't pray for the destruction of children. We pray for the preservation of them. We work to save their lives, not destroy them. That doesn't fit either. Some of the church fathers would say, well, what does this mean? Well, they would allegorize them, or they would use them in a different way. Origen said that the little ones here are small evil desires that are born in your heart, and uh, we should eradicate those while they're small sins. Before they acquire great strength, others suggest, "Well, this is just figurative; it's not all literal." I mean, there weren't a lot of big rocks in Babylon, and this this can't be what this means. But is that how the Israelites understood that when they said this? The imprecations like this, of course, we're uncomfortable with them. But we have to understand that imprecations like this are often the piling up of a verbal sentiment to express the height of the writer's rage more than a literal penalty that he intends. Let me give an example from, again, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, so this is rather shocking. It's a prophet of God, and he says this. Let the man be cursed who brought the news to my father, saying a male child has been born to you. Of course, Jeremiah's talking about himself. Let the man who announced my birth be cursed, And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear cry, let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon. The judgment fall upon him. Jeremiah says, because he did not kill me from the womb. It's rather shocking for a man of God. Let the man be cursed because he didn't abort me. It's a very vivid kind of communication. But it's not always intended to be taken in a literal sense. It communicates a mood. Its it's intention is to shock us into a vivid sense of the recognition of sin and its end result, its consequences. The consequences in which they found themselves. We find shocking language like this in the book of Job as well. But even so, here the words still are. Blessed be the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And while this is intended to communicate the writer's rage, this is still words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that the chief end of man isn't the welfare of man, it's the glory of God. And here we have an example of a prayer that is altogether proper, that is altogether right, because it's divinely inspired. It's not the personal vendetta of the psalmist against his enemies, but it's the inspired words of God that are concerned for the honor of his name. This is a picture of judgment. And what's going on here in in Psalm 137 and verse 9 is a, a picture of the judgment of God being brought against the Old Testament, the enemies of God's people. It is, as it were, a picture of the end times judgment of the day of the Lord that would be visited upon the enemies of God. It's, as some people put it, an intrusion of the judgment of the consummation upon the Old Testament covenant of grace. Now, in the New Testament, we are told that we are to pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. There is in the day in which we live in God's, according to the gracious commitment of Christ to the redemptive covenant made with the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, an ethic of grace that we treat our enemy with love. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, but in Psalm 137 we have a different kind It's the prayer that the judgment of the consummation will be visited upon the enemies of God, that God will do as he said that he will do, that he will come again and judge sinners and vindicate his people. It's divinely inspired. A divinely inspired request that God withhold his grace from those who are his enemies and judge them at the last day. This is a picture of the judgment of the consummation, judgment for sin, the great white throne judgment, where the judgment of God will be unmistakably manifested. Upon who? Upon the children of iniquity. This is a picture of the final judgment of the ungodly. We can see this by the words of Christ. How do we know this picture, blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock, is not an Israelite personally desiring to smash Babylonian babies on the shore because it is the only part of the psalm that is quoted in the New Testament is quoted by Christ in Luke chapter 19 and verse 44 the Lord speaks to Jerusalem and you may remember that passage he weeps over Jerusalem because the inhabitants of Jerusalem still refuse to listen to God's word that's what got them here in Babylon And they still won't listen. And he speaks of her destruction. And he says, your enemies are going to come and they will lay siege upon the city. And he says, they will dash you to the ground, you and your children, within your walls. Jesus is taking this imprecation of Psalm 137 and he's laying it on Jerusalem. Why? Why does Jesus take this imprecation written by the people of Judah against Babylon and instead says, this applies to you. Why? Because they had rejected Christ, the chief cornerstone. You see, back here in Psalm 137, verse 9, we see it is against the rock that the descendants were to be smashed. Not rocks, but rock, singular. It's the same word that is used for rock back in Numbers chapter 20 where Moses was to speak to the rock to provide water, living water, for the children of Israel. Paul helps us to understand what that means in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says that rock was Christ. What is this verse talking about? It's talking about the the judgment of unbelievers against the rock, against Jesus Christ. The judgment of those unbelievers who have rejected the gospel of Christ Final judgment against those who reject him. Final judgment for those who are part of Babylon. Final judgment for those who belong to the kingdom of Satan. The gospel makes it clear that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. It is for those who are hard of heart, for those who refuse to repent. What is Babylon? Babylon is a picture of those who have rebelled against God and continue in that rebellion. How do we know that? Not only because it's used that way all throughout scripture, but come with me to Revelation chapter 18. I read this just a little bit earlier. Revelation chapter 18, 5 and 6, we read, Babylon, the great, is fallen. Is fallen. And has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Come out of her, my people. Lest you share in her sins, lest you receive her plagues. Verse seven and eight. In the measure that she glorified herself in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord. What is Babylon? Babylon is a picture of the city of man rebellion against God. What is the judgment of, against Babylon. It is the judgment of Christ against those who have rejected him. You see what one, Psalm 137 is? It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance for those who are of Babylon, for those who would continue to <coughs> sin lest they face the judgment of God. But for believers, what do we do? Can we pray this prayer today against our physical enemies? How about the guy who worked at budget? The guy that doesn't pay his bills? How about your personal persecutor? That's the psalm we use, right? No. We pray this psalm, we sing this psalm, we can recite this psalm as an affirmation of God's judgment against the spiritual forces of wickedness. That's our real enemy. Just as Babylon was Israel's, We pray and recite and sing the psalm because it speaks of the victory of Christ over our enemies, our spiritual enemies. And as for our flesh and blood tormentors,
1: under the gospel
0: through Christ, we are told, we have taught that we are not to pray against them, but for them. We are to repay their evil with good. They're to be loved and they're to be sought. Why? Lest they face the judgment. That's here in Psalm 137. And that's the message of Psalm 137. It's a message of salvation, that God would spare us from this judgment and yet vindicate his glory against sinners. Now there's a modern musical version of by the Rivers of Babylon. There... we sat down and we wept. And you can slap your knee and you sing it and so on. And sung with great enthusiasm and cheerful and rejoicing. At first glance you think that's not really a pep rally they're having by the rivers of Babylon. But in the end maybe they have it right. This is a song of rejoicing. This is a song of salvation. Why? Because we're exiles. We too are exiles in a foreign land. Our citizenship is in heaven, and because Christ has already come, we have a taste of that. We have a taste of home because His kingdom has broken in upon us. Guess what? We can sing. We can sing the songs of Zion here, because Christ has come, and we don't have to journey from uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem to find God's temple. But Jerusalem has come to us as God's spirit has been poured out into our hearts, as God dwells with us and God dwells in us. Can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Absolutely. For Jesus has come. The rock has come. Do you long for Jerusalem? Do Do you long for the holy city? Even by the rivers of Babylon, or the rivers of whatever's the closest river to Adamsville. If we were in Memphis, it would be the Mississippi. Whether you're near to home or far from the earthly place you call home, you can sing the Lord's song. You can exalt in the kingdom of God as your chief joy. You know, in John chapter 7, Jesus, on the, the last day of the Passover, he stood up, and he cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of, of living water. And Revelation 17 gives us a picture of Babylon the heart. A picture of the rebellious and the ungodly. And she's seated on many waters in Revelation chapter 17. By the rivers of Babylon. In Revelation chapter 17 she's shown still exuding prosperity and power and influence and wealth. But its end is destruction. In Revelation 16 there's the sixth bowl of judgment that is poured out. It's God's wrath. Now, do you know where the sixth bold judgment of Revelation 16 is poured out? It's poured out upon the river Babylon, the river Euphrates. And it's dried up in preparation for destruction. But what about you? The people of God, we drink from the river of the water of life. And when the final judgment comes, and when Babylon is at last fully and finally judged. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, will give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life without cost. Psalm 137 is a glorious picture of salvation. That's what it is. It's a prayer that God will keep his covenant commitment to us, and he will, that we might drink of the waters of life. The Spirit and the Bride, Revelation twenty-two seventeen say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that